0: section six of a commentary on the epistle to the romans by john calvin translated by francis sibson this librivox recording is in the public domain romans three verses one to thirty one what advantage then hath the jew or what profit is there of circumcision much every way chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of god although paul carried on the dispute with great ability to show that empty vain circumcision was of no use to the jews yet because he could not deny a difference between the jews and gentiles which had been distinguished by the lord with his sign it was absurd to make a distinction unprofitable and unimportant which had god for its author this objection also required solution the boasting of the jews from this source was clearly proved to be foolish the difficulty still remained for what purpose was circumcision established by the lord if it did not deserve to be commended for some advantage he therefore asks by way of meeting the objection in what does the jew surpass the gentile and he subjoins the reason of this question by asking another when he says what profit is there of circumcision for it separated the jews from the common lot and condition of men as paul calls ceremonies ephesians two fourteen a wall which separated one class of mankind from another much in every way he here begins to praise the sacrament yet in such a way as not to allow the jews to be proud on its account for when he says they had been distinguished by the sign of circumcision for the purpose of their being considered the sons of god he does not confess that they had attained this excellence by any merit or dignity of their own but by the kindness and favour of god If they are considered in their character as men, he proves them to be equal to others. If God's favors are considered, he proves them in this respect to be more distinguished than other nations. Chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Some consider it inconclusive because he proposes to do more than he afterwards explains and accomplishes. The sense is, although the single circumstance of the oracles of God being entrusted to their care ought to be sufficient to secure their dignity, it is worthy of remark that the use of circumcision does not consist in the mere sign, but its value is determined by the word of God. Paul here proposes the question, what advantage does the sacrament of circumcision confer on the Jews? His answer is that God has deposited with them the treasure of heavenly wisdom, whence it follows if the word of life is removed no excellence remains paul means by oracles the covenant first divinely revealed to abraham and his posterity and afterwards recorded and explained by the law and the prophets the oracles are entrusted to the keeping of the jews while it pleased god to confine his glory among them which were afterwards in the time of god's dispensation to be published through the whole world the jews were at first the depositaries and afterwards the stewards of the oracles of god if while the lord deigns to communicate his word to any nation it is to be regarded as so great a favour we can never sufficiently detest our own ingratitude for receiving his oracles with so much negligence and indolence not to say scorn for what if some did not believe shall their unbelief make the faith of god without effect god forbid yea let god be true But every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mayest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. For what if some did not believe? As before, when he regarded the Jews as exulting in a mere naked sign, he did not grant them a single spark of glory. So now, when he is considering the nature of the sign, he testifies that its value is not destroyed even by their vanity, since therefore he seemed before to have hinted that the ingratitude of the jews had destroyed all the favour bestowed upon them in the sign of circumcision he now again asks by way of meeting the objection what opinion ought to be entertained of its use by his silence on this occasion he understands more than he expresses for it would have been true had he said that a large part of the nation of the jews rejected the covenant of god But, as such language would have grated on their ears, he diminishes its severity by restricting his censure to a few. Shall their unbelief? The Greek word means to render vain and without effect, and is very well suited to the present passage. For Paul, considering not only whether the unbelief of men can prevent the truth of God from remaining firm and stable, but whether its influence and fulfilment among them may thus be impeded since therefore the apostle asks many of the jews are covenant breakers is the covenant of god so abrogated by their perfidy as to produce no effect among them he answers it is impossible for human depravity to destroy the steadfastness of divine truth although a great part of the jews has acted a deceitful part towards the covenant and trampled upon it yet it continues to retain its efficacy and exerts its power if not in all at least in the nation itself the meaning of the sentence is that by the grace of god a blessing even for eternal salvation is in force among them which can only happen where the promise is received by faith and a mutual covenant confirmed on both sides he intimates therefore that some in the jewish nation continuing firm in the faith of the promise had not been deprived of this prerogative but let god be true whatever opinion others may entertain i consider the force of the argument to consist in the necessary position of the contrary by which paul weakens the preceding objection for these two propositions stand together nay necessarily agree that god may be true and man a liar the consequence follows that the truth of god is not prevented by the falsehood of man for if he did not here oppose these two principles to each other he would be inconsiderately and uselessly engaged soon after in refuting the absurdity how god may be just if he commends his own righteousness by our unrighteousness the sense therefore is clear that the fidelity of god so far from being overthrown by the perfidiousness and revolt of man is thus rendered more distinguished he calls god true not only because he is prepared faithfully to abide by his promises but he accomplishes in deeds whatever he declares in words for he says as my power so shall my work be man on the contrary is a liar not only because he often breaks his promise but also by nature he desires falsehood and avoids truth the first position is the primary axiom of the whole Christian philosophy. The latter is taken from Psalm 116, verse 11, where David confesses there is nothing certain either from man or in man. But this is a striking passage, and contains very necessary comfort, for so perverse is man in rejecting or despising the word of God, that he would often doubt its certainty if he did not remember that the truth of God depends not on the truth of man, But how does this agree with the following expression, that the faith of man which receives the divine promise is required for its efficacy? For faith is opposed to falsehood. The question appears difficult, but its solution is not attended with much trouble, for the Lord, by the lies of men which are otherwise obstacles to his truth, will find a way through places otherwise impassable, that he may gain the superiority of correcting in his elect the innate unbelief of their nature, and subjecting to his obedience such as appeared invincible. HE IS NOW DISPUTING CONCERNING THE VICE OF NATURE, NOT THE GRACE OF GOD, WHICH IS THE REMEDY OF OUR VICES, THAT YOU MAY BE JUSTIFIED. THE SENSE IS OUR FALSEHOOD AND PERFIDY ARE SO FAR FROM DESTROYING THE TRUTH OF GOD AS TO MAKE IT SHINE WITH GREATER SPLENDOR, AS DAVID TESTIFIES, PSALM fifty-one, four. THAT GOD, WHATEVER HE MAY DETERMINE AGAINST THE PSALMIST, SINCE HE IS A SINNER, WILL BE A JUST AND RIGHTEOUS JUDGE, AND OVERCOME ALL THE CALUMNIES OF THE WICKED, WHO MAY DESIRE TO MURMUR AGAINST HIS RIGHTEOUSNESS. David understands by the sayings of God the judgments he may denounce against us, for it is too forced to understand, as is generally done, the promises. The sentiment of David, I have sinned against thee, therefore wilt thou be justly entitled to punish me, confirms this view of the passage. The objection afterwards added proves Paul had cited this passage of David in its proper sense. How shall the integrity of God's righteousness continue if our iniquity exalts its glory? For Paul, as I have lately hinted, detains his readers in a very useless and unseasonable manner by this difficulty, if David did not mean that God, by his admirable providence, elicited the praise of his own righteousness from the sins of men. The second position in the Hebrew is, and be pure, in judging thee. The import of this expression is that God, in all his judgments, deserves to be praised, however much the wicked may rail and endeavor with hatred to bury his glory in oblivion by their complaints but paul followed the greek translation which also suited better his present purpose for we know the apostles were not very strict in making quotations from the old testament since they were satisfied of the passage cited applied to the subject and were not on this account so scrupulous in the words which they adopted the present passage may be thus applied if any of the sins of mankind are necessarily required in giving lustre to the glory of god and he is chiefly glorified in his truth it follows that human vanity serves rather to commend than subvert his truth and though the greek word admits either of a passive or active signification yet i am sure the translators took it in a passive sense contrary to the mind of the psalmist but if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of god what shall we say is god unrighteous who taketh vengeance i speak as a man God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and some affirm that we say, Let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. But if our unrighteousness, it was necessary for the apostle to insert this, though a digression from the general subject, that he might not appear to have afforded the malignant a handle, which he knew they were glad to take, for railing against him. For as they watched every opportunity for defaming the gospel, the testimony of David afforded them a subject for calumny. If God seeks nothing else but to be glorified by man, why does he punish delinquents, when their transgressions add to his glory?" He is certainly offended without a reason if the cause of his wrath is derived from the very subject by which he is glorified. There can be no doubt this was a common and trite calumny, as it will again in a short time be repeated, and on this account Paul could not pass it over without some observation. To prevent, however, any one from thinking him to adduce in this passage the conception of his own mind, he states in the preface that he assumes the character of the wicked, he forcibly attacks though in one word human reason whose property he insinuates to consist in always snarling against the wisdom of god for he does not say he speaks as the wicked but as a man and this is really the case for since all the mysteries of god are paradoxical to the flesh man is so bold as to rise up against them without hesitation and to inveigh in a petulant manner against subjects which he does not comprehend this admonition teaches us that if we are desirous to understand such mysteries we must particularly renounce our own sense of them and must devote and give ourselves up entirely to the obedience of the word the word wrath which means judgment is here transferred to punishment and implies the following sense is god unjust who punishes crimes that display his own justice god forbid in checking this blasphemy he does not give an immediate answer to the objection but first commences with stating his utter detestation of the opinion that the christian religion may not appear to be accompanied with such great absurdities and this is much stronger than a simple refutation for he implies that such impious language ought to excite their horror and not be listened to for a moment He afterwards adds an indirect refutation, as it is termed, for he does not entirely clear away the calumny, but only states in this answer the absurdity of the objection. He also takes an argument from the office of God himself to prove its impossibility. God will judge this world, therefore he cannot be unjust. This is derived not from the mere potentiality of God, as they state, but from his actual dominion, which shines forth in all the course and order of his works, and implies the following truth. The duty of God consists in judging the world, in settling it by His justice, and reducing into the most perfect order every derangement it exhibits. God, therefore, can form no unjust law. Paul seems to have alluded to the passage in Moses, Genesis 18.25, where, while Abraham entreats God not to deliver Sodom up to entire destruction, he says, That be far from thee, who art the judge of the earth, to slay the righteous with the wicked, for that is not thy character, nor can it belong to thee job in a similar sense observes chapter thirty four verse seventeen shall even he that hateth right govern for unjust judges are often found among men either because they usurp power against all justice and equity or are inconsiderately raised to such an honour or degenerate from their own true character nothing of this kind can occur in god since therefore he is by nature judge he must necessarily be just for he cannot deny himself Paul, therefore, reasons from the impossibility of justice being ever truly alleged against God, whose property and essential character it is to govern the world in righteousness, and though this doctrine of Paul extends to the continued government of God, yet I grant an allusion is particularly made to the last judgment, for then, finally, a solid, firm renewal of right order will take place. If, however, you are desirous to have a direct refutation of such impious positions, the following merits consideration... God's justice is not more clearly manifested from the nature of injustice, but His goodness overcomes our wickedness by giving a different direction to the design and tendency of our conduct. For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie, this objection, I doubt not, is also brought forward in the character of the wicked. It is an explanation of the former, and would have been connected with it had not the apostle, feeling indignant at the dishonour offered to God, broke off in the middle of his discourse. The following is the sense of the passage. If the truth of God is made more plain, and in some measure established by our falsehood, so that more glory results from our conduct to the supreme ruler, it is not right to punish him as a sinner who has been the servant of the glory of God. And not as. This elliptical sentence may be thus supplied. And why is it not rather said, as we are accused by some, that we must do evil that good may come? The Apostle does not condescend to answer this sophistry, which, however, may very easily be refuted. The wicked adduced the following pretext, If God is glorified by my iniquity, and the most honorable part of a man's conduct, through life, is to promote the glory of the Lord, then I ought to sin for the purpose of advancing the glory of the ruler of the universe. The objection can easily be removed, for evil in itself can produce only evil. Our vice casts luster upon God's glory, not by the work of man, but of God, who, as a wonderful Creator, knows how to subdue and direct our wickedness into another channel, so as to convert it, contrary to our intended design, to the increase of His glory. God has appointed piety, consisting in the obedience of His word, as the way by which He is desirous we should glorify Him, and every person who overleaps the bounds determined by His truth, endeavours rather to disgrace than to honour God. The different result which follows from the conduct of the wicked is to be ascribed to the providence of God, not to the depravity of man, that was prepared not only to injure, but to subvert the majesty of the deity. As we are accused It is surprising when Paul discoursed concerning the secret judgments of God with such solemnity to find his enemies calumniating him with so much frowardness but no piety however great no sobriety however distinguished in the servants of god can check the impure and virulent tongues of the wicked it is no new example therefore that our doctrine which we ourselves know to be the pure gospel of christ and to us all the angels and believers bear witness should be loaded at this present time with so many accusations and rendered so odious by our adversaries nothing can be conceived more strange and monstrous than what is here adduced against paul for the purpose of making the ignorant and unexperienced dislike his preaching in consequence of the disreputable reports circulated to its dishonour let us therefore patiently bear the calumnies with which the wicked assail the truth nor let us ever cease constantly to maintain its simple confession since it has sufficient power to crush to pieces and disperse their greatest falsehoods but after the example of the apostle let us oppose as much as we can their malicious devices that these flagitious and abandoned sorry fellows may not rail against their creator with impunity whose damnation is just some take it in an active sense as if paul assented to the absurdity of the objection that the doctrine of the gospel may not be considered to be in the least connected with such paradoxes i approve more of its requiring to be understood in a passive signification for it would not have been consistent to give a simple assent to so great a wickedness which ought rather to have been sharply reproved and i think paul adopted this course their perverse conduct deserved to be condemned on two accounts first that they could ever assent to this impiety from the conviction of their understanding in the second place that by their very traducing the gospel they had the hardiness to contrive such a calumny against so glorious a truth what then are we better than they no in no wise for we have before proved that jews and gentiles that they are all under sin what then he returns from his digression to the subject in hand for to prevent the jews from objecting on any account that they were deprived of their rights after he had recounted the praises of dignity by which they exalted themselves above the gentiles he now finally solves the question whether they surpassed the heathens in any respect For though this answer seems in appearance to disagree a little with the former, since he now deprives those of all dignity on whom he had before bestowed much, yet there is no opposition. For those privileges in which he confessed them to excel are external, consisting in the goodness of God, and not in their own merit. But here he inquires whether they had any dignity of their own in which to glory in themselves. These two answers, therefore, so agree that one results from the other. For when he extolled their prerogatives included in God's benefits alone, he shows them to have nothing purely their own, and hence the answer which he now gives might immediately be inferred. For if their chief excellence consists in the oracles of God being deposited with them, and they possessed not this from any merit of their own, they have no cause for boasting in the presence of God. Observe the holy artifice of the apostle who addressed the Jews in the third person when he claimed for them any excellence. But when he is now desirous to take all from them, he joins himself to their number, that he may avoid giving offence. For we have before proved, the Greek word here is properly a judicial one, for an accuser is said to establish an indictment in an action, which he is prepared to substantiate by other testimonies and proofs, and the apostle has cited the whole human race before the tribunal of God, that he might include all under one condemnation some may in vain object that the apostle does not here merely charge with a crime but rather proves it for a real accusation rests on firm and valid proofs as cicero has in some part of his writings made a distinction between accusation and reproach moreover to be under sin implies the same thing as to be justly condemned before god as sinners or to be under the curse which is due to sin for as righteousness is associated with acquittal so condemnation follows an offence AS IT IS WRITTEN, THERE IS NONE RIGHTEOUS, NO, NOT ONE. THERE IS NONE THAT UNDERSTANDETH, THERE IS NONE THAT SEEKETH AFTER GOD. THEY ARE ALL GONE OUT OF THE WAY, THEY ARE TOGETHER BECOME UNPROFITABLE. THERE IS NONE THAT DOETH GOOD, NO, NOT ONE. THEIR THROAT IS AN OPEN SEPULCHRE, WITH THEIR TONGUES THEY HAVE USED DECEIT, THE POISON OF ASPS IS UNDER THEIR LIPS, WHOSE MOUTH IS FULL OF CURSING AND BITTERNESS, THEIR FEET ARE SWIFT TO SHED BLOOD, DESTRUCTION AND MISERY ARE IN THEIR WAYS, AND THE WAY OF PEACE HAVE THEY NOT KNOWN there is no fear of god before their eyes as it is written his reasoning has hitherto been designed to convince men of their iniquity he now begins to derive his arguments from authority which is the strongest kind of proof with christians provided the authority of god alone is appealed to Let teachers of the church hence learn the character of their office, for if Paul here asserts no doctrine which he cannot at the same time confirm by the certain oracle of scripture, much less ought those to attempt it who have no other command to preach the gospel than which they have received by the hands of Paul and others. There is none righteous. The apostle makes one general position before he descends to particulars, following rather the sense of the passage than the entire expressions, and states, first, the sum of those things which are related by the prophet to be in man, namely that there is righteousness in none, and afterwards enumerates in separate parts the fruits of his unrighteousness. Psalm 14.1 The first fruit is a want of understanding in all men. He afterwards convicts them of folly because they do not seek after God. Psalm 53.3 For the man who is not possessed of the knowledge of God, whatever other kind of erudition he may have attained, is a vain person nay even the very sciences and arts which are good in themselves are rendered vain if they want this foundation he adds there is none that doeth good by which he means they have laid aside all sense of humanity for as our best bond for mutual union with each other is found in the knowledge of god since in the character of a common father to all he reconciles us in the best manner to each other so out of him everything is merely in a scattered and dissipated state because want of humanity generally follows our ignorance of god while each, treating others with contempt, loves and seeks himself. He next subjoins, their throat is an open sepulchre, Psalm 510, a gulf for the ruin of their fellow-men. The expression is stronger than men-eaters, for it is the heart of barbarism that man's throat should be so dreadful a whirlpool as to be able to swallow down and to consume his fellow-mortals whole and entire. The same meaning must be annexed to their tongues being deceitful, and their lips lined with poison. Psalm 140, verse 4. It is added, their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Psalm 10, 7. A vice opposite to the former, but the meaning is that they breathe forth wickedness in every part, for if they speak pleasantly, they deceive and drink to their neighbor poison, under the most captivating smiles, and with the most flattering language. But if they speak their real sentiments... Bitterness and cursing is the language of their lips. The expression, in Isaiah 59, 7, is very beautiful. Destruction and misery is in their ways. For it is the personification of the most barbarous ferocity, which, by carrying universal destruction with every step, makes all around one solitude and desolation. In this form of ruin and havoc, Pliny describes Domitian. It follows that the way of peace they have not known, for being habituated to repine, violence, injuries, and savage cruelty, they know not how to do anything in a friendly or kind manner. He again, at the conclusion, repeats, in different language, the sentiment with which he commenced, that all depravity flows from the contempt of God, for whenever we have forsaken the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom, nothing right or sincere remains. Since, finally, the fear of God is a bridle by which our wickedness is restrained, its removal gives a loose to all the licentiousness of vice." but that none may regard these quotations as wrested by forced interpretation from their original meaning we will carefully consider the sense of each passage from the nature of the context david in the fourteenth psalm verse one says there was so much perverseness in the human character that god on looking down from heaven and examining the whole race of mankind in succession to see if there was any just person could not find even one this proves the whole human race to have been infected with this moral pestilence since nothing escapes the all-seeing eye of god he speaks indeed towards the conclusion of the psalm concerning the redemption of israel but we will show in another passage after what manner and to what extent saints may be delivered from this general state of moral degradation he complains in other psalms of the wickedness of his enemies where he shadows forth in himself and his descendants a certain type of christ under his adversaries therefore all christ's enemies who are not led by the spirit of god are intended isaiah expressly mentions israel and his accusation is also much more true against the gentiles in short we cannot doubt that human nature is pointed out to us in these testimonies and that we may hence clearly see what man is when left to his own heart since the scripture testifies all the unregenerate to be of this description the condition of the saints would not be in any respect superior to that of others unless their depravity was corrected the seeds of vices are felt in the remains of their flesh with which they are constantly encompassed and would invariably bring forth fruit if they were not prevented by christian mortification for they are indebted to the mercy of god and not to their own nature The design of God in permitting the remains of sin in believers is to make them remember that the corruptions of their own nature differ in nothing from those of others. The circumstance of all the vices here enumerated, not appearing remarkable in every individual, does not prevent them from being truly and justly collected together as a mass in human nature, which we have noted above. Chapter 1, verse 26 Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before god therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin now we know passing by the gentiles he expressly applies these testimonies to the jews whom he found it much more difficult to subdue because being destitute as well as the gentiles of real righteousness they defended themselves under the pretext of god's covenant as if their separation from the rest of the world by his election would be sufficient for their holiness and he produces indeed the way by which the jews endeavoured to escape which he knew them to be very dexterous in seizing for whatever harsh expressions the law uses against the whole human race they usually applied to the gentiles as if they were exempted from the common condition and this was the case provided they had not fallen from their rank and station paul therefore lest they should be prevented by the false imagination of their own private dignity and restrict to the gentiles alone what promiscuously pertained to the jews anticipates the objection and proves them from the design of scripture not only to have been mixed with the crowd but to have particularly come under this condemnation the apostle shows great diligence in refuting the objections of his countrymen for to whom was the law given was it not designed as a means for instructing the jews what it states of others was accidental or beside the point and its doctrine is chiefly suited to its own disciples in the law paul says the law was designed for the jews and the conclusion is that it chiefly regarded them He comprehends also under the name of law the prophets and the whole of the old testament that every mouth may be stopped that all tergiversation and power of excuse may be cut off this metaphor is borrowed from trials where the defendant if he can say anything in his just vindication demands to be heard in his turn that he may exculpate himself from the accusation laid to his charge but if he is weighed down by his own conscience he says nothing and without speaking a word expects condemnation since he has already lost the trial by his own silence the form of expression job thirty six thirty seven i will lay my hand on my mouth must be understood in this sense For Job says, though he could produce some kind of defence, yet, laying aside all thought of self-justification, he was ready to submit to the sentence of God. The following part of the verse is explanatory. For his mouth is stopped, who is so completely entangled in his trial as to be able by no means to escape. In other passages, to be silent before the face of God means to tremble at His majesty, and to stand mute, as it were, with astonishment at His brightness. Because by the works of the law... The learned themselves doubt what is meant by the works of the law, for while some include the observation of the whole law, others confine it to the ceremonies alone. The addition of the word law induced Chrysostom, Origen, and Jerome to coincide with the last opinion, for they considered this addition denoted some peculiar works, and restricted the passage from being applied to every sort. This difficulty can be very easily solved, for, because works are so far righteous before God as we endeavour by them to worship and obey Him, with a view more expressly to deprive all works of the power of justifying, He named those which, more than any other, possessed that power, for the law has promises annexed, without which our works would be of no value before God. You see, therefore, in what way Paul has expressed the works of the law, because, indeed, by the law, a value is fixed upon our works, nor are the schoolmen ignorant of this for it is a trite and common expression with them that works are meritorious not by any intrinsic dignity but by compact and though they are mistaken because they do not consider works to be always so polluted by vices as to deprive them of all merit yet the principle is true that the reward of works depends upon the voluntary promise of the law paul therefore with prudence and propriety does not dispute about mere works but in an express and particular manner regards the observance of the law which was the subject then under consideration the arguments adduced by other learned men in support of this opinion are more flimsy than might have been expected they consider that circumcision was mentioned as an example belonging to ceremonies alone but we have already explained why paul has mentioned circumcision for hypocrites alone are inflated with confidence in their works and we know they boast only in external appearances as a mask. Circumcision also, in their opinion, was a certain initiation into the righteousness of the law, and seemed therefore at the same time to be a work of primary dignity, nay, as it were, the foundation of the righteousness of works. The other arguments are derived from the epistle to the Galatians, where Paul, when he handles the same subject, directs all his reasonings to ceremonies alone. This is not sufficiently cogent for their purpose." there can be no doubt paul was engaged in a controversy with such as puffed up the people with a false confidence in ceremonies to decide this he does not confine himself to ceremonies nor does he peculiarly discuss the question of what use they are but embraces the whole law as is evident from the passages which are all taken from that source such also was the state of the dispute maintained at jerusalem among the disciples but we contend with sufficient cause that paul is here speaking of the whole law for the thread of the dispute which he has thus far followed and afterwards adopts clearly supports us in this opinion and many other passages do not permit us to entertain a different view the opinion therefore is particularly distinguished that none shall obtain righteousness by the observance of the law because all mankind being guilty of transgression stand convicted of unrighteousness by its prohibitions These two opinions are opposed to each other, as we shall see more fully in the sequel, that a man is considered righteous by his works, and is accused as guilty of transgression. Flesh, if not particularly specified, signifies man, but it seems to be taken in a still more general sense, as more is expressed, according to Gellius, when we say all mortals than all men. For by the law... He reasons from the contrary, that we have not righteousness from the law, because it convinces us of sin and condemnation, since life and death do not spring from the same fountain. His reasoning that righteousness cannot be conferred by the law, which is productive of a result directly contrary, can only be felt and understood by considering all hope of salvation to be cut off by an inseparable and constant accident, by the law proving to every man his own sin the law by teaching righteousness opens the way to salvation but our depravity and corruption prevent it from producing this effect we must now also necessarily add in the second place that whoever has been found a sinner is deprived of righteousness for it is frivolous and trifling to invent a half-righteousness that works may in part justify as the sophists do for man's viciousness precludes the possibility of adopting this opinion but now the righteousness of god without the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of god which is by faith of jesus christ unto all and upon all them that believe for there is no difference but now the righteousness of god without the law it is uncertain in what sense he calls the righteousness obtained by faith to be god's either because it alone can stand the test of the presence of god or the lord confers it upon us by his own mercy we enter into no dispute on this subject since either interpretation suits our view he says therefore that this which god communicates to man and which alone he receives and acknowledges for righteousness was revealed without the assistance of the law so that the law may be understood to be taken for works for it is not proper to refer to doctrine what he afterwards cites as a witness of the gratuitous righteousness of faith i will soon prove that it is in vain and frigid to restrict it to ceremonies we must know therefore that the merits of works are excluded we see also how he does not join works with the mercy of god but having removed and blotted out every opinion of works he sets up this alone i know well that augustine gives a different explanation for he considers the righteousness of god to be the grace of regeneration and he confesses it to be gratuitous because god renews us undeserving as we are by his spirit and he excludes those works of the law by which men endeavour to merit God of themselves without regeneration. I have too much cause also to know that some modern theorists state this opinion with pride and conceit, as one revealed to them at the time. But it may be plainly proved from the context that the apostle includes all works without exception, even such as the Lord produces in his people for abraham was certainly regenerated and influenced by the spirit of god when paul denies his being justified by works he excludes therefore from man's justification not only works morally good as they are generally denominated and performed by the instinct of nature but all the works which believers may possess if also happy are they whose iniquities are forgiven be a definition of the righteousness of faith we cannot dispute about different kinds of works for the merit of all works is abolished, and the remission of sins alone is determined to be the cause of righteousness. They consider these two subjects to agree very well, that man, by the grace of Christ, is justified by faith, and yet justified by works which spring from spiritual regeneration, because God renews us gratuitously, and we perceive his gift by faith. But Paul assumes a very different principle, that our consciences will never be at peace until they rest on God's mercy alone, In another passage also, when he taught that God was in Christ justifying men, he at the same time expresses the manner by not imputing sins unto them. In the epistle to the Galatians also he therefore makes the law contrary to faith with respect to the effect of justification, because it promises life to those who do its commands. But the law does not command a literal pretense of works as a mask, but the sincere love of God, It follows, therefore, that no merit of works is admitted in the righteousness of faith. Hence it is evidently a frivolous cavil to say we are justified in Christ because we are renewed in the Spirit, so far as we are members of Christ, that we are justified by faith since we are engrafted by faith into the body of Christ, that we are justified gratuitously because God can find nothing in us but sin. For we are therefore in christ because out of ourselves therefore in faith because we must necessarily rest upon the alone mercy of god and his free promises therefore gratuitously since god reconciles us to himself by burying our sins nor can that be restricted to the beginning of righteousness as these men dream for the very definition happy are they whose iniquities are forgiven took place in david when he had long exercised himself in the worship of god and abraham thirty years after he had been called though he had been an uncommon example of holiness, has no works whereof to glory before the Lord, and therefore his believing the promise is imputed to him for righteousness. And when Paul says that God justifies men by not imputing their sins, he recites a passage daily read in the church, and that peace of conscience, which is disturbed with regard to our works, is not of one day, but ought to continue during our whole life. Hence it follows that we are in no other sense just until death, except by looking to christ alone in whom god hath adopted and now accepts us hence the cavil is refuted of such as accuse us of making a false assertion from scripture that we are justified by faith alone since the exclusive particle does not occur in scripture and if justification exists without law and out of ourselves why shall it not be considered to come from mercy alone if it is of mercy alone then of faith alone The particle may either be translated but or now, if it refers to time, a sense I readily adopt, lest we should appear desirous to escape its force, the alone abrogation of ceremonies is not to be understood, for the intention of the Apostle was only by comparison to illustrate the grace which makes us excel the fathers. The sense, therefore, is that the righteousness of faith had been revealed by the preaching of the gospel after Christ had been manifested in the flesh. It does not thence follow that it had been concealed before Christ's advent, for a double manifestation is here to be considered, the former of the Old Testament, which consisted of the word and sacraments, the latter of the new, which, besides the ceremonies and promises, contains its fulfilment in Christ, to which must be added a fuller clearness by the gospel. BEING WITNESSED this is added that the gospel may not appear to contend with the law in the dispensation of gratuitous righteousness for as he asserted that the righteousness of faith did not require the assistance of the law so he is now prepared to prove his assertion by its testimony and if the law afford a testimony to gratuitous righteousness it is evident that it was not given us to teach men to secure righteousness for themselves by works the law is perverted by such as wrest it for this purpose moreover if you want a proof of that opinion follow in order the sum of the doctrine of moses and you will find that man in the beginning after he had been cast out from the kingdom of god had no other means for being restored than by the evangelical promises which predicted that the head of the serpent was to be buried by the blessed seed in which a blessing is declared to the gentiles you will find in the precepts a demonstration of your iniquity from the sacrifices and oblations, you will learn that satisfaction and purification exist in Christ alone. If you come to the prophets, you will there find the clearest promise of gratuitous mercy. On this see our institutes. The Righteousness of God He shows in a few words that this justification resides in Christ and may be apprehended by faith he appears by repeating the name of god to make him the author not merely the approver of the righteousness concerning which he treats as if he had said it flows from him alone its origin is from heaven and it is disclosed to us in christ the following order must be pursued in our inquiries on this subject first that the cause of our righteousness is not to be referred to the judgment of men but to the tribunal of god where nothing is considered righteousness but the perfect and complete obedience of the law as evidently appears from the promises and the threatenings. And if no human being is found who has attained so strict a holiness, it follows that all want righteousness in themselves. Christ must, in the next place, present himself, who, as he alone is just, so he renders us just by transferring his own righteousness to us. You now see how the righteousness of faith is the righteousness of Christ, The mercy of God is the efficient cause of our justification, Christ the material, the word with faith the instrument. Faith is therefore said to justify because it is the instrument for receiving Christ, in whom righteousness is communicated to us. When we are made partakers of Christ, we are not only ourselves just, but our works are considered righteous in the presence of God, because every imperfection in them is obliterated by the blood of Christ the promises which were conditional are fulfilled to us by the same grace since god rewards our works as perfect because their defects are covered by gratuitous pardon unto all and upon all he repeats the same in different forms of expression for the purpose of confirming and magnifying it that he may more strongly express his former statements that faith alone is required in this instance and the faithful are not distinguished by external marks and on this account it is of no importance whether they are gentiles or jews For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time His righteousness, that He may be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus, for there is no difference he enjoins to all without exception the necessity of seeking righteousness in christ as if he said there is no other way of obtaining righteousness there is not one method for justifying one class of men and a different one for another all must be saved by faith for all are sinners and therefore none have cause for glorying with god he takes it for granted that every one when he comes to the tribunal of god will feel conscious to himself of his guilt and be in a state of ruin and confusion under a sense of his own disgrace hence no sinner can bear the presence of god as we see in the example of adam he again enters the contest having taken his reasoning from a contrary view of the subject and on this account we must pay careful attention to his following arguments Paul infers that, since all are sinners, they suffer either from a deficiency or privation of the praise of righteousness, wherefore, according to his doctrine, there is no righteousness but a perfect and finished one. For if there was a half-righteousness, it would not be necessary immediately to deprive the sinner of all glory. The hypothesis of what is termed a partial righteousness is thus sufficiently refuted for if it was true that we are partly justified by works and partly by the grace of god this following argument of paul would be inconclusive all are therefore destitute of the glory of god because they are sinners it is certain there is no righteousness where sin exists until christ abolished the curse the same occurs in galatians three ten all who are under the law are subject to the curse from which we are delivered by the kindness of christ He means by the glory of God that which takes place in the presence of God, as in John chapter twelve verse forty three, they love the glory of men more than the glory of God. And thus he summons us from the applause of a human theatre to a heavenly tribunal. Being justified freely. The participle is used commonly in Greek for the verb, and the passage means, since nothing else remains for men in themselves but their destruction being pierced by the just judgment of god they are therefore justified gratuitously by his mercy for christ assists their misery and communicates himself to the faithful so that they find in him alone all things they require perhaps there is no passage in the whole scripture more remarkable for illustrating the power of this righteousness for he shows the mercy of god to be the efficient cause christ with his blood the material faith conceived by the word the formal or instrumental the glory both of the divine justice and goodness the final with respect to the efficient cause he says we are justified gratuitously and indeed by god's grace and on this account he has twice used the expression the whole is of god nothing is ours it would have been sufficient to oppose grace to merit if the imagination of a half righteousness had been received by paul who had very clearly declared his view by adding a repetition of it and has claimed for the mercy of God alone the solid effect of righteousness, which the sophists divide into parts and mutilate, lest they should be compelled to acknowledge their own poverty. By the Redemption The matter of our righteousness, because Christ, by his obedience, satisfied the judgment of the Father, and by enduring in our stead, freed us from the tyranny of death by which we were held captive. For our guilt was removed by the expiatory sacrifice which he offered, this is the best refutation of the hypothesis made by those who consider righteousness to be a quality for if we are reckoned righteous before god because redeemed with a price we certainly borrow from another what is not in ourselves and paul afterwards explains more clearly the value or tendency of redemption namely our reconciliation to god for he calls christ a propitiation or what i more approve as an allusion to an ancient figure a propitiatory And what does this mean but that we are just in proportion as Christ has made the Father propitious to us? We will now carefully consider the import of each expression. Whom he hath set forth. The Greek word has two meanings, to appoint and to set forth. If the former sense be admitted, Paul refers to the gratuitous mercy of God because Christ was ordained a mediator to reconcile the Father to us by the sacrifice of his death for it is no common praise of grace that god of his own accord found out a means by which he might remove our curse and certainly the following passage seems to agree with this sense god so loved the world as to give his only begotten son john three sixteen should we however adopt the other meaning the same reason will remain that in his own time god set forth christ whom he had determined with himself to be a mediator The Greek word alludes to the mercy seat, for he informs us that Christ exhibited in reality what was represented in a figurative sense to the Jews. Since, however, the other opinion cannot be proved false, if any prefer it on account of simplicity, I shall leave him to make his own choice. Paul has certainly proved from these words what he was very desirous to do, that God without Christ is always angry with us, and we are reconciled to him when received by his righteousness. For God does not detest in us his own work. It is not our creation as men, but our uncleanness, which extinguishes the light of his image. When the washing of Christ has wiped away this state of moral defilement, he loves and kisses us as his own pure work. Propitiatory or mercy seat, by faith in his blood. I prefer a literal translation, since I think Paul's intention was to include in the same word the idea of God being made propitious to us, as soon as we repose our confidence in the blood of christ because by faith we come into the possession of his benefit when he names the blood alone he did not wish to exclude other parts of redemption but rather to comprehend the whole sum under it and he named the blood in which we have our font for uncleanness so that the whole doctrine of expiation is pointed out by this one part For in addition to what he had lately stated concerning God being pacified in Christ, he shows this effect to be produced by faith, and what our faith ought chiefly to regard in Christ. For the remission of sins With the design of blotting out sins, and this definition or explanation again confirms what I have so often hinted at already, that men are justified not because they are such in reality, but by imputation— for he repeatedly uses different words for the purpose of making it still plainer that there is no merit of ours in this righteousness. For if we obtain it by the remission of sins, we conclude it is without us. Besides, if this remission proceeds from the mere bounty of God, all merit falls to the ground. The question may be proposed why pardon is restricted to sins that are past. Although this passage is variously explained, I consider it probable that Paul's attention was directed to legal expiations, which were indeed certain testimonies of future satisfaction, but could by no means appease God. A similar passage occurs in Hebrews 9.15, that the redemption of sins which remained under the Old Testament was introduced by Christ. Nor ought we to understand with some fanatics who have ignorantly rested this passage to support so strange a dream that the sins merely of former times were expiated by the death of Christ. For Paul only teaches that no price for atoning God had been paid until the death of Christ, nor had this been performed or fulfilled by legal figures, so that the truth had been suspended until the fullness of time. Daily guilt can be expiated by no other means, for there is only one atonement for all sins. Some, to avoid this fanatical absurdity, said former sins were forgiven, that a license might not seem to be afforded for future sinning it is true that pardon is not offered except to sins committed not because the advantage of redemption can fail or perish if we afterwards fall as Novatus and his sect dreamed but because the dispensation of the gospel is to propose judgment and wrath to a person designing to commit sin mercy to the sinner the true sense however is the explanation already given the addition that this forgiveness was through the forbearance of god means merely mildness, which restrained the judgment of God, and suffered it not to be inflamed for our destruction, until He should receive us into favor, but it appears rather a tacit anticipating of the objection which some might propose against the late appearance of the grace of Christ, and Paul shows this to be a kind of forbearance. To the Demonstration the repetition of this member of the sentence is emphatic and designedly intended by paul because very necessary since it is extremely difficult to persuade man to deprive himself of all honour and bestow it on god although mention is designedly made of this new demonstration to make the jews direct their attention to so important a doctrine at this time HE REFERS WHAT BELONGED TO ALL TIMES, TO THE PERIOD WHEN CHRIST WAS EXHIBITED, AND NOT WITHOUT REASON, FOR GOD OPENLY MANIFESTED IN HIS SON WHAT HAD formerly BEEN KNOWN ONLY UNDER THE COVERING OF TYPES. THUS THE COMING OF CHRIST WAS A TIME OF KINDNESS AND FAVOUR, AND THE DAY OF SALVATION. GOD GAVE SOME PROOF OF HIS RIGHTEOUSNESS TO ALL AGES, BUT WHEN THE SON OF RIGHTEOUSNESS AROSE, HIS SPLENDOR SHONE FORTH WITH MUCH GREATER BRIGHTNESS. We must notice the comparison between the Old and New Testament, because the righteousness of God was evidently then revealed when Christ was exhibited, that he may be just. This is a definition of that righteousness which he said had been displayed when Christ was given, as he had in the first chapter taught it to be manifested in the Gospel. And he affirms it to consist of two parts. The first is that God is just, not indeed as one of many, but as containing alone in himself all the fullness of righteousness for neither is that complete and solid praise to which he is entitled properly bestowed upon him in any other way than by his obtaining alone the name and honor of a just character, while the whole human race is condemned for unrighteousness. The other part consists in the communication of righteousness, while God indeed by no means keeps his riches shut up with himself, but pours them forth upon mankind the righteousness of god therefore shines so far forth in us as it justifies us by the faith of christ for christ would in vain be given for righteousness if enjoyment did not arise from faith hence it follows that all men were unjust and ruined in themselves until a remedy had been offered from heaven where is boasting then it is excluded by what law of works nay but by the law of faith therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law where is boasting then? After the Apostle, by the most solid reasons, had deprived men of all confidence in their works, he now exalts over their vanity. This exclamation was rendered necessary, for it would not be sufficient for us to teach this subject, unless the thunders of the Holy Spirit laid low our dignity by the greatness of his power. And he says boasting is excluded without all doubt, since we can produce nothing of our own which merits the approbation or commendation of God. And if merit, whether of congruity or condignity, be a subject of boasting, by which man may conciliate God to himself, you see both of these completely subverted, for the apostle does not here speak of the diminution or moderation of merit, since he does not leave a single drop. Besides, if boasting of works be removed by faith, so that it cannot be purely preached without robbing man entirely of praise, while all power and glory are bestowed on the mercy of God, it follows that no works assist us in the attainment of righteousness." Of works? How does the Apostle deny in this passage our merits to be excluded by the law, since he had before proved our condemnation by the law? For what glory shall we seek from that which devotes us all to death? Does it not rather rob us of all glory and cover us with disgrace? On that occasion he showed our sin to be disclosed by the judgment of the law, because we had all departed from its observance but here he means if righteousness consists in the law of works our glory would not be excluded but as it is by faith alone we can therefore arrogate nothing to ourselves for faith receives all from god and carries him nothing except the humble confession of want the antithesis between faith and works must be carefully observed where works are mentioned universally without any addition He is, therefore, neither disputing merely concerning ceremonies, nor an external kind of works, but comprehends all the merits of works which the mind can conceive. The word law is improperly applied to faith, but this does not obscure the sense of the apostle, for he means, when he comes to the rule of faith, that all the glory of works is completely overthrown, as if he had said, the righteousness of works is indeed praised in the law, but faith has its law, which leaves no righteousness in any kind of works. Therefore we conclude. He now infers without any doubt his principal proposition, and adds also his explanation, for much light is cast on justification by faith if works are expressly excluded. On this account our adversaries labor hard at this time to involve and mingle faith with the merit of works. They confess indeed that man is justified by faith, but not alone. Nay, in reality they bestow on love the power of justification, though in words they grant it to faith. And Paul in this passage so asserts gratuitous justification as to make it evident that no dignity of works can possibly be joined with it i have already shown why he calls them the works of the law and proved the folly of such as restrict them to ceremonies it is also a frigid hypothesis to mean by the works of the law the works of the letter which take place without the spirit of christ and the epithet means the same as meritorious since it regards the reward promised in the law the passage in james that man is justified by works and not by faith only is not in any way opposed to the preceding opinion of paul the best method of reconciling them is by considering the nature of the argument used by james in his epistle the question is not how men may acquire righteousness for themselves in the presence of god but how they can prove themselves righteous for he is refuting hypocrites who make a vain boast in the title of faith it is therefore a gross paralogism and does not distinguish the different senses in which the word justification is used by james and paul since they treat on different subjects the word faith is also equivocal and its various meanings must be explained if we wish to form a correct judgment of this question the design of james as appears from the context was to show that man is not proved or rendered righteous by a feigned or dead faith but his righteousness must be confirmed by works On this subject, see our institutes. Is he the God of Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Is he the God of the Jews? The second proposition, that righteousness does not belong to the Jews more than the Gentiles, is now considered. It was of great importance to urge this with a view to establish the kingdom of Christ in all the earth. He does not, therefore, simply or precisely put the question whether God created the Gentiles, which was an acknowledged truth, but whether he was desirous to declare himself their saviour. For after the Apostle had made the whole human race equal, and reduced them to the same condition, all distinction between them must be from God, and not from those created beings who are on a level with each other in respect to their works. If it is, indeed, a truth that God is desirous to make all the people of the earth partakers of his mercy, Salvation and righteousness, which are necessary for salvation, are extended to all. The mutual relation, therefore, between God and His people is thus frequently marked in Scripture, I will be to you a God, and ye shall be to me a people. Jeremiah 30.22 For God's electing of a peculiar people to Himself for a certain time does not abrogate the principle of nature by which it is proved that all men are formed according to the image of God, and educated in the world to the hope of a happy eternity who justifies the uncircumcision the apostle when he says some are justified by faith and others through faith seems to have been pleased with a variety of expression in pointing out the same truth with a view to have a passing stroke at the folly of the jews who imagined a distinction between themselves and the gentiles while there was not the smallest difference in the cause of justification For if men are made partakers of this grace by faith alone, and faith is the same in both, it is ridiculous to make a distinction in so great a similitude. In my opinion, the apostle uses the word ironically in the following sense. If there must be a difference between the Jew and Gentile, it is this. The Gentile obtains righteousness through faith, and the Jew by faith. Unless the following distinction be preferred, the Jews are justified by faith because they are born heirs of grace, while the right of adoption is transmitted from the fathers to them, but the Gentiles through faith because the covenant with respect to them is adventitious. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. Do we then make void? When the law is opposed to faith, the flesh immediately seizes on this as a plea for cherishing some suspicion of contrariety between them, as if they were opposed to each other. But this false imagination particularly gains an easy access to the minds of such as are deeply tinctured with a false view of the law, who, neglecting the promises, seek only in it the righteousness of works. On this account the Jews severely attacked both Paul and our Lord himself, as if all his preaching aimed at the abrogation of the law. Hence his declaration, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfil, Matthew 5.17 this suspicion extended also both to the moral and ceremonial law for since the gospel puts an end to the ceremonies of moses its object is considered to be the destruction of his ministry besides since the gospel blots out all righteousness of works it is believed to be opposed to all those testimonies of the law in which the lord affirms he has there prescribed the way of righteousness and salvation I consider this defence of paul to relate neither to the ceremonies particularly nor to the moral precepts as they are termed but to the whole law which he regards universally for the moral law is truly confirmed and established by faith since it was passed for this very purpose to bring man when acquainted with his sins to christ without whom it is not performed itself the law in vain proclaims what is to be done while it accomplishes nothing else but an increased excitement of inordinate desires and finally by this means aggravates the condemnation of sinful man when however we come to christ the exact righteousness of the law is first found in him which also becomes ours by imputation in the next place sanctification is acquired by which our hearts are formed to the observance of the law and though this is imperfect yet we still keep our eye fixed upon the law as the mark we aim at in our obedience the same view is to be taken of the ceremonies which cease indeed and vanish on the coming of christ but are truly confirmed by himself for they are vain and shadowy images considered only by themselves and will then be found to have something solid and substantial when they have respect and are directed to a better and nobler end. The doctrine by which we teach that these ceremonies have attained their true fulfilment in Christ is their highest confirmation. Let us therefore so remember to dispense the gospel as to establish the law by our plan of teaching, but let it be supported by no other strength than by faith in Christ. End of section 6